Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. John le Carré, as many of you know, was a British author of spy novels, and he did them rather well. John le Carré was his pen name. He was born David Cornwell, and he died earlier this month. His mother left the family when he was five years old, and he only met her again when he was 21. His father was a con man. John le Carré would join Britain's Security Service, or MI5, and then later the Secret Intelligence Service, or MI6, in the 1950s and 60s, and most of his books are set in the Cold War. His spy novel, The Honourable Schoolboy, which came out in 1977, is the second in a trilogy that pits George Smiley of Britain's Intelligence Service against his Soviet counterpart and nemesis, Carla. This week, I chat with British author Paul French about The Honourable Schoolboy, the settings in our city, including the Foreign Correspondents Club, or FCC, and the Happy Valley Racecourse, among others, and how John le Carré created his characters. I think, I mean, le Carré is a superlative writer, not, not just of spy fiction, espionage. Of course, he was always put in that genre, which sort of makes it seem as if it's something lesser than literature but he was a superb writer he writes the most amazing scenes and of course he's given us an entire across the course of his work he's given us an entire world and a way of seeing the world outside of that world so so you know the circus and his version of the secret service and the world that they engage with has become for many of us almost a sort of alternative history of the cold war and post-cold war and he was a spy himself Yes, he was. I mean, he had a very strange background. And in fact, I urge anyone who hasn't read it to read his memoirs, The Pigeon Tunnel, because they are absolutely fascinating. And he talks quite a lot about Hong Kong and Asia in those memoirs as well. His father, of course, was basically a con man, which I think explains so much about so many of the characters in his books and his attraction to the world of espionage, which is basically a con game. But also he did manage to get the tap on the shoulder when he was at university and did go into the Secret Service, mostly because of his language skills in German and so on, and, and mostly, as, as with most of his books, dealing with the Soviet threat to Europe. But the Honourable Schoolboy, of course, takes him outside of that and also goes right back to the start of his career in the Secret Service, which although we always think of him as Berlin and Moscow and Carla and Moscow Centre versus the London Circus, you know, his actual own career started thinking about China. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, that's sort of something that isn't written about a lot, but it's very interesting. In the 1950s, when he joined the intelligence services, he wasn't posted abroad or anything. At that point, he was put on a sort of general uh, checking people out sort of apprenticeship. And at the time, Britain was very, very concerned about China in the early years of, of the People's Republic and using Chinese students from the mainland, as well as they believed that ethnic Chinese students were, were susceptible to recruitment. And um, part of what Le Carre did was to go around the universities, as he was still a young man at the time, checking out various students from China, from Hong Kong, from Singapore, from then Malaya, to see if they might be working for the Chinese. I don't think he found any, but what he did work out, which is very interesting in terms of the Honourable Schoolboy and interesting in terms of British Sinology, I think, is that the sinological knowledge that the intelligence services were calling upon was hopelessly outdated and was based largely on a group of ex-missionaries 
who had lived in China, obviously, you know, before the war, spoke what he described as rather imperfect uh, Chinese Mandarin and, and other dialects, and basically had no clue about communist China. And so the information he was seeing was absolutely awful. And this all fed into the ideas he had that became the Honourable Schoolboy. Now, it's interesting, in a clip from a, a recent interview he'd done uh, prior to his death, he was talking about, you know, the fact that he ends up writing, he talks about the, the perspective of the writer as an observer, whether they want to be or not, they seem to be permanently in that state. And he said, had he not been talking about what his experience was, which was the spying game, then, you know, had he had, <laughs> he made me laugh, because he said, had he had a, a career in advertising, then he would have written about that, which I think is, you know, when you look at the Honourable Schoolboy and other books that he wrote, <laughs> imagine that he'd given the same treatment to advertising. Oh, yeah, I mean, it would have been good. We, we, none of us would be talking about Mad Men, would we? We'd all be talking <laughs> about something else. The other thing, of course, is um, Hong Kong was very important to him in the sense that we all associate Le Carre later with, with in-depth research. You know, when he wrote The Little Drummer Girl about um, Israel and Palestine, he went and spent time in Palestine. When he wrote novels that were set in Africa, he went to Africa and he actually went out with, with teams from Medicine Sans Frontieres, who he raised a lot of money for later as well. And also when he went to um, Hong Kong, he of course went to the FCC, went to the other locations. And from there he went to Phnom Penh and he went to Vientiane, which are two locations that feature in The Honourable Schoolboy. And the reason he did that was that in an earlier book, I think it's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, there's one reference to someone in Hong Kong getting a ferry across the harbour. And when he got to Hong Kong, uh, after they got off the plane at Kai Tak, then getting a ferry. And when he got to Hong Kong, he realised that they'd built a tunnel. And he thought this was awful. And he contacted his publishers as fast as he could. This was 1974. And he said, you've got to change it. You've got to change it. And the first edition had already been printed. So the first edition of, I think it's Tinker Taylor, has a reference to someone taking the ferry when they could have taken the tunnel. And later editions have a uh, have references to the tunnel and after that he decided he would never write another book without visiting the places he was writing about to make sure that he didn't make those kind of cock-ups now the honorable schoolboy is 700 pages would you say that it's his best work well i'm, I'm biased in that um, obviously it talks about subjects i'm very interested in it you know it, it's obviously about asia and it's about uh, the fallout from the communist takeover of China. It's about the remnants of the Guomindang around the region. It's about the run up to the start of the negotiations about the future of Hong Kong and concerns back in London as to how uh, Beijing might be spying to find out what, what our strategy was and, and of course going vice versa. So I think it's an amazing book. It also of course is the book that comes after the much better known Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which if people haven't read it, they've probably seen the BBC version with Alec Guinness as George Smiley or the more recent one, which was very good, I thought, with Gary Oldman as Smiley. And this is the second Smiley book. And it's really about after the disaster of a senior mole in uh, the intelligence services, really almost destroying the British intelligence services. It is Smiley's chance to take over and rebuild the intelligence services. And the way he does that is through this episode that he discovers in the files that took place in Hong Kong, in Vientiane, and, and throughout Asia. And so although Smiley himself never really leaves his desk in London during the book, we go backwards and forwards all around Asia. And therefore, it's an incredibly important book because it is the book that transitions from Moscow's complete infiltration and destruction of the British intelligence service to the rebuilding of it 
and then for the service to be strong enough to, to go on the attack and go after, of course, Smiley's great nemesis, Carla, the head of Russian intelligence. All of them, all of his characters are, are quite conflicted characters. If you take Smiley, he's incredibly complicated. What do you think of George Smiley? Smiley's, in a sense, almost not a typical Le Carre character. He is as English as uh, as anything, and he is a, is a sort of, you know, slightly overweight, bumbling man who's constantly cuckolded by his wife, speaks only when he really needs to, thinks things through, goes on enormous long walks through London in the rain, trying to work out his strategies. In that sense, he's very different to most of Le Carre's other characters who are usually in some way, as you say, conflicted or have feet in both camps in some way. And I think mm. it's always worth looking at minor characters in Le Carre who sometimes get brought to the fore in other books. So the character of Jerry Westerby, who's a, who's a major character, who is the Honourable Schoolboy, the major character in The Honourable Schoolboy, is a minor, very minor character in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And sometimes the little character profiles he has of minor characters, small agents, little informers that go on, are always uh, rather conflicted people. And the Honourable Schoolboy is absolutely full of them. Jerry Westerby is a newspaper reporter that is sent, or under the guise of a newspaper reporter, is sent by Smiley to Hong Kong. How do you think that John le Carre depicts Hong Kong in the 1970s? Because he comes here, as you say, in 1974. Yes, I mean, I think he, he gets it. I mean, uh, both the character of Old Craw and the character of Jerry Westerby are based on, on real people, uh, people who would have been very well known around Hong Kong and, and Asia at that time. And le Carre came to the region and he met these people. He had an idea, of course, of that traditional idea of Hong Kong as the listening post on China, a kind of entrepot of dodgy bank accounts, not too many questions asked, the slightly distanced relationship between London and the governor's office and the two not liking interference with each other. There's also been, of course, at the start of the book, an incredibly chaotic removal of the head of British intelligence from Hong Kong, who has, of course, been blown by the, by the traitor from Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. But it's a Hong Kong as well in the mid-1970s towards the end of the war in Vietnam. And, of course, at that time, Hong Kong was, and particularly the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong, was where so many of the war-chasing journalists spent their time. So we've got the Vietnam War coming to an end, the horrors of Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge getting underway, messes in Vientiane, and we've still got, which of course is not much so much talked about by historians today, the remnants of the Guomindang in the Golden Triangle and various other places moving opium around. So everyone comes into play in this book. Do you think it's quite a seedy depiction? Oh, well, that depends on your view of Hong Kong. I mean, if I if I was to look, for instance, at one of the descriptions of, of the uh, Foreign Correspondents Club, I mean, it's just a paragraph and I could probably, you'll probably get a certain uh, flavour of the Foreign Correspondents Club from this. Shall I read it? Sure. Well, it's a Saturday. It's the mid-1970s and a typhoon is coming in and the book starts on a typhoon Saturday. And I think... I mean, Hong Kong's a bit busier now, but in, in the older days, I think that, you know, Saturdays were a very slow day in Hong Kong. And the notion of this typhoon coming in and the weather starting to change and people getting off the streets and hunkering down, knowing that it's going to hit, I think is a very uh, one that everyone who's, who's spent time or lives in Hong Kong will know. So he says the club was pretty much empty. For reasons of prestige, the top correspondents steered clear of the place anyway. It was a few businessmen who came for the flavour pressmen give, a few girls who came for the men, a couple of television war tourists in fake battle drill, 
And in his customary corner, the awesome rocker, superintendent of police, ex-Palestine, ex-Kenya, ex-Malaya, ex-Fiji, an implacable warhorse with a beer, one set of slightly red knuckles and a weekend copy of the South China Morning Post. And, you know, I, when I'm in Hong Kong, I occasionally wander into Lower Albert Road there where the, where the club is now. He's talking about the old FCC. And um, it, it hasn't changed greatly, I don't think. <laughs> yes, that was in Sutherland House before. That's in Sutherland House, yes. So at the very start, he talks about the 13th floor. And I've seen people online saying, oh, you know, it's not on the 13th floor. He's completely wrong. But of course, it was when it was at Sutherland House. But if you go, and I know you won't have been in there, Anne-Marie, if you go in the men's toilet <laughs> at, uh, at the FCC... Oh, I at, will um, now. <laughs> well, you'll need to sneak in, yeah. At, um, at, at Lower Albert Road, there is actually a picture of uh, the view from the toilet in Sutherland House across the harbour. Of course, it was a lot higher up. There was a lot less tall buildings in the mid-1970s. And it's the view that is described in the book as the view from the men's toilet out across the harbour. And he describes, obviously, you know, the, the view of Hong Kong across to Kowloon and so on. And you can see that view. They've got a long kind of picture of it um, next to the window that, that now looks out of the, the men's toilet. So next time you're there, sneak in and, and have a quick look. Tell me about Old Craw. Well, Old Craw, I mean, as I say, there's two sort of characters that are very Hong Kong in this book, really. I mean, one is Old Craw, who's been there forever, and one is Jerry Westerby. I mean, Old Craw, how to describe him? Well, I mean, we'll let Le Carre describe him in a paragraph, shall we? I mean, his writing is so concise, we can do this, I think. And he describes him as, in their tireless pursuit of legends about one another, Old Craw was the ancient mariner of the FCC. Craw had shaken more sand out of his shorts, they told each other, than most of them would ever walk over. And they were right. In Shanghai, where his career had started, he had been T-boy and city editor to the only English-speaking journal in the port. Since then, he had covered the communists against Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang against the Japanese and the Americans against practically everyone. Craw gave them a sense of history in this rootless place. His style of speech, which at typhoon times, even the hardiest might pardonably find irksome, was a genuine hangover from the 30s when Australia provided the bulk of journalists in the Orient and the Vatican, for some reason, the jargon of their companionship. And of course, as we know, uh, Old Craw was based on a very well-known at the time, hard-bitten Australian journalist called Richard Hughes, who used to spend a lot of time in the uh, FCC. And in fact, John le Carre talks about him in his memoirs. Yes, he does. He talks about Hughes, yes, and Hughes was, was a fascinating character. I mean, when we're talking about the 1970s, we are, we are, of course, talking about people who cut their teeth on that kind of Shanghai of the 1920s and 30s as young journalists. And so, you know, they are people who saw a great span of Chinese history and were great repositories of knowledge and information. And, and Richard Hughes was, was one of those people. I think so too, Peter Sims, who was the model for Jerry Westerby. And Peter Sims was? Well, I mean, Peter Sims, again, let's let, let Le Carre describe Peter Sims, which he does in, in The Pigeon Tunnel. Um, which is his uh, memoir, and, yeah. Yeah, and um, actually, Le Carre had created Jerry Westerby in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, just as a very minor character. And he was thinking of bringing him back in The Honourable Schoolboy. And so he had to flesh him out. And at the time, he was thinking about him, and he passed through Singapore. And he says, you know, it was one of the eeriest encounters of my writing life. I bumped into Jerry Westerby at Raffles Hotel in Singapore. Not a pen portrait, but really the man himself. Right down to, this is what uh, Le Carre had imagined him to have, huge cushioned hands and enormous shoulders. 
His name wasn't Westerby, but by then it wouldn't have surprised me if it had been. It was Peter Sims. He was a veteran British foreign correspondent and also, as is now generally known, though at the time I knew it no better than anyone else, a veteran British secret agent. He was six foot three with sandy hair and a schoolboy grin and a habit of barking super when he fervently shook your hand in greeting. And of course, Peter Sims did go on to be a senior official with British intelligence in Hong Kong later in life. And, and Le Carre there almost creates a character and then bumps in to the very epitome of this character, you know, a sort of posh rolling around journo with a with a with a uh, intelligence link as well. And of course, you know, has this ridiculous title of honourable down through his family line and um, has been living in Italy where everyone has referred to him because he walks around in shorts all the time being very English as a schoolboy. And he is the honourable schoolboy. Jerry Westerby, we watch during The Honourable Schoolboy, he becomes obsessed, it would be a one word, with Lizzie Worthington, who's the mistress of Drake Co., who we'll look at in a moment. And he gradually starts to not obey what George Smiley is telling him to do. Well, yes, he goes beyond. I mean, Smiley has obviously worked out through looking at the files and with the help of Connie Sachs, who is his great expert on the Soviets, and uh, a wonderful character that he has called Doc de Salis, who is a former Jesuit missionary in Shanghai, who is now British intelligence's uh, senior advisor on China and knows everything, and is the very antithesis of the actual China hands that, that Le Carre complained about, which we talked about at the start. He creates the perfect uh, China hand, really, um, to dig all this out. Yes, but Westerby becomes a little obsessed, goes beyond his brief, which is a very common theme in Le Carre, the agents that are asked to do a little bit and then stand down, of course, enjoy it all too much and try to dig around a little more. And so we see him move around. And again, to become obsessed with Lizzie Worth, who's another sort of great Le Carre character, who's a sort of English girl from a rather drab suburban background who's walked out on her boring teacher husband and gone to um, Asia. First of all, been involved with a ex-Air America pilot called Tiny Ricardo in Vientiane and Laos, and then ends up in Hong Kong as the mistress of Drake Co. And this is a very, again, a very Le Carre character, you know, a complete reinvention of herself, which is also a theme that I always return to because I just think it's so accurate when you study people from those times and, and, and the region, just these people that come out from England or America or wherever and reinvent themselves. And of course, those kind of characters are are everywhere in the intelligence services and everywhere in, in Le Carre's mind, going back again to, of course, his father, who reinvented himself constantly as a con man. You know, when you're reading Le Carre, do you also get a little bit sort of depressed in his depiction of human nature? No, not really, because I suppose my view of human nature is fairly down as well. <laughs> I mean, everybody in, a, in, in Le Carre, of course, is conflicted characters. So I, I was looking through The Honourable Schoolboy this weekend and I thought, you know, look at some of the minor characters he has who just advance the plot a little bit, but seed his his world. And, and they're also historically one wonderfully accurate characters from the time as well. He has a white Russian emigre, you know, moved from Shanghai to Hong Kong, who is a mafu or, you know, a, a groom to the racehorses at Happy Valley, who has all sorts of stories about the old days in Shanghai. I mean, that's a wonderful, rich character that could be from real life. Phoebe Wayfarer, who is uh, one of old Craw's intelligence agents, one of Jerry Westerby's contacts. And she is also conflicted because she is biracial. She has a Hong Kong mother, English father. The father disappeared very early. So she has a sort of, you know, odd relationship with both local Hong Kongers and also with the foreign community, but ends up having this idealistic vision 
of an England that she's never visited and so is willing to work for the intelligence services. Sally Kale, who's a wonderful character as well, who is also a contact of British intelligence and is a very out lesbian who deals in antiques. But as Le Carre tells us, of course, you know, and in a Le Carre novel, someone like that can never just be an antique dealer. She, of course, deals in the very highest level of fakes that she sells to visitors, thinking they're buying Ming Dynasty vases and walking away with something just knocked up at a pottery in the New Territories. So, of course, that, that's a very Le Carre sort of thing. And these minor characters that pop in and out and, as I say, seed the novel, make it so atmospheric and, and so really true. There's another character who is a sort of rather foolish missionary who's moved back home, who, who raised Drake Co, who we'll talk about, mm. um, in a mission in Shanghai before the war. And he's, he's an example of a rather foolish missionary whose Chinese was never very good, who uh, never really managed to convert anyone, who never really had a great understanding of things. So he seeds it with all these characters who could all be real people. They really could all be real people. So he obviously talked to lots and lots of people, met lots and lots of people and absorbed yes. all of these characters that were in Hong Kong at the time. Tell me about Drake Coe. Well, Drake Coe, I mean, I don't know if Drake Coe is really based on anyone in particular. If he is, Le Carre didn't say. But I mean, I think Drake Coe is a composite of a Hong Kong tycoon that we could all identify with and particularly would have after the war. And of course, as we know, one of the great stories of, of Hong Kong is that, you know, really the business power is all Shanghainese, right, that moved down after 1949, whether it's the film studios or, or the Tung Chi Hua in shipping and politics. You know, it was all sort of Shanghai money. And that Shanghai community, and in this case, he talks about Drake Co being Swato Chinese and having this great connection to the sea, which is which is part of the story of smuggling and moving things around and, and Drake Co's involvement between Hong Kong and the mainland. But Drake Co's also a type that we used to know very well in Hong Kong of someone who had done extremely well at business. You weren't always quite sure how they'd done extremely well in business or what business it was they'd done extremely well in. But they had done very well and had <laughs> the big house on the peak. And the uh, Drake Crow's great obsession is with his horses at Happy Valley. And of course, as ever with Le Carre, it's not quite clear whether or not the races are fixed or not fixed or whether Drake Co is, uh, you know, pulling all sorts of stunts to win or lose based on how the betting's going. And that's very Le Carre, obviously. But he also has studied at the Middle Temple in London for a law degree. And also, of course, you know, has got uh, some sort of gong. I forget what it is now. It's an OBE, an MBE, some such nonsense that he, of course, is very proud of. Le Carre himself, of course, turned down, famously turned down every honour that was thrown at him on the grounds that they were all ridiculous. Did Le Carre see himself as, as an Englishman, as fundamentally British? Well, I think he saw himself very much as English. And I think that, you know, that, that, that's interesting now, given that he's just died in the terms of, you know, the rethinking of Englishness and so on. I mean, I last saw him speak about this at the South Bank when his last novel, unfortunately, his last novel, Agent Running in the Field, came out. He spoke for a couple of hours uh, to an absolutely packed house. He was able to charge a lot of money for the tickets and he gave all the proceeds to Médecins Sans Frontières. And of course, he was what he was really obsessed with at the time was the stupidity of Brexit, the inability of many people now in England to see themselves as being at the heart of the European project rather than wanting to disengage with it entirely. But a lot of people didn't like his later books. I think he always was very prescient and always touched on on incredible um, subjects, some of which we only realise now are so good. I mean, if you look at his books about the the sort of, you know, slightly underhand role of Big Pharma 
in Africa. And now we see, you know, who will get a vaccine, who won't get a vaccine, who do things get tested on, who do they not get tested on. The fallout from, um, you know, the enlargement of the European Union and, and people moving around, you know, the, the shift back to the, the right in many East European countries and so on. All of this plays out in Le Carre's later books. And it, he's as on his subject later on as he is here in the, in the Honourable Schoolboy, where we're looking at what is the fallout from the end of the Vietnam War. Who's aligning with who? Who is making decisions to support the colony in Hong Kong? Who is making decisions to throw their lot in with Beijing? And how exactly are we going to negotiate this impending handover? The handover runs at the back of the honorable schoolboy all the way through, certainly in Smiley's thoughts which is, you know, we have to get Hong Kong right. We have to sort out where our intelligence services are and what our position is in Hong Kong and in Asia. Otherwise, we'll get this enormous one wrong and, and we won't negotiate the handover correctly, as well as, you know, we'll allow the service to be destroyed. And I think that's, that's really, really important. And it's very much of its time. And one of the things he mentions, which I think is a great historical point about Hong Kong, is that the total suppression, which really was solid, of the KGB and Russian intelligence in Hong Kong was really one of the things that, that meant that Britain was able to make quite good friends with Beijing at the start, because of course at the time, Beijing was very unsure of the Soviet Union and was very keen on the suppression of the Soviet Union in Hong Kong. And it's a weird kind of irony of history that one communist country was very pleased with a very capitalist country for suppressing the espionage activities of another communist country. And how did they do that? Well, they just caught them. Le Carre talks about it in The Honourable Schoolboy, and it's another reason historically to read it, which is the tensions between the Hong Kong police intelligence branch and the governor's office, as well as, you know, London and the British intelligence services. And, and this notion of trying to, to work out who really had domain in, in Hong Kong to deal with these things. Ah, fascinating. And also, of course, with it being over 30 years ago, we can all go and have a look at that, surely. Yes, I mean, there is, there is a lot of papers on that now, and, and it is kind of interesting. But I think, you know, if you read The Honourable Schoolboy, there are lots of moments where he goes into it and, you know, he talks about all of these things. It's really, really interesting. They're discussing uh, Hong Kong and, and Smiley says Moscow Centre's previous attempts to gain a toehold on the colony have been one and all without exception abortive and completely low grade. And then he reels off a bunch of boring instances, so it says, including uh, ones that would be historically very accurate, including trying to pressurise various white Russian, uh, Russian emigre restaurateurs who, who, you know, many people will remember ran many great restaurants in Hong Kong after the Second World War to spy, but, but it never really works. And they, they manage to always uh, either arrest them or expel them. And Smiley comments that, you know, Peking hands us a nice pat on the back for containing Soviet imperialist expansion. And I think that that's a, a kind of an interesting little aspect of history that, um, that Beijing sort of came to to, to really appreciate the fact that there, Hong Kong wasn't really an active Soviet spying base on China at a time when Moscow and Beijing were, were in a rather fractious relationship. I find it fascinating that, that, I mean, would it be fair to say that, you know, the fact that Hong Kong is providing this listening station for Western powers, is it comparable in any way to Berlin? Well, yes, in a sense it is. And of course, the other thing that runs through the book, which of course, you know, runs through all of Le Carre's work, is also this rather fractious relationship that the British have with the Americans, the cousins, right? 
we are supposed to share intelligence with them. America is very interested in what's going on in China. Hong Kong is the natural listening post for them. They're in their own mess in Southeast Asia. They're not very happy with the British for not joining them in the Vietnam War. There's many, many Americans in Hong Kong. He has a number of characters who are there. But of course, the British see Hong Kong very much as their ballywick and don't want to share any of it with the Americans. So they've almost got, rather than the Russians, it's actually the CIA that are the kind of foreign espionage organization that the British are most concerned about in Hong Kong because they don't really know what they're up to. Interesting. If people as a sort of like a Hong Kong voyeur want to, when, when they're reading The Honourable Schoolboy, what, what are the type of places that he takes us to? You've mentioned obviously the Foreign Correspondents Club when it was at Sutherland House, the FCC, the horses at Happy Valley Racecourse, where else? Well, there's a, there's a rather wonderful and long, it is quite long, I'm afraid, moment where um, Jerry Westerby has to try and shake off anyone who's following him. And he walks through the whole of Central, describing many, many of the buildings and, and the places where he's moving through, which is great. There's also a, quite, a, quite a lot of action that takes place at the Hong Kong races at Happy Valley. Old Craw lives out in a village in the New Territories, and of course they have to go out there at one point. Yes, I mean, all of all of Hong Kong life is really there. There's lots of wonderful descriptions of littering harbours and, and the run up to the, the border with China. And they all take place really in the first half of the book. In the second half of the book, the action moves on a little bit from Hong Kong to Laos, Vientiane, and to Cambodia a little bit. And of course, always he's going backwards and forwards back to Smiley in London, sitting at his desk, trying to control all of this. My thanks to British author Paul French talking there on David Cornwell or John le Carré, who died earlier this month, and his spy novel, The Honourable Schoolboy. Here's wishing you a good start to 2021. Thanks for listening and join me next week.